<clears throat> so, in the past, this church has used monthly themes as a tool for deepening spiritual growth together. And how it works is each month an idea is woven into various aspects of church life to extend the possibilities of this ongoing communal conversation. This year, the church has subscribed to an inexpensive Unitarian Universalist service called the Touchstone Project. You'll see a little bit of information on the back of your flyer. So with Touchstone, we can send you the monthly journal on the topic by email, and we'll print some out too. And any small group in the church can use the accompanying discussion guide. Parents and grandparents might want to share the monthly wisdom story with children as well as materials and activities on the Families Matters page. And anyone in the congregation can also subscribe to an e-letter called Contemplations that arrives every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning with a brief reading. You can become involved as you wish. Watch for details in your email, on Facebook, in the church newsletter, and out in the fellowship hall in the next week or two. So we begin our church-wide conversation on the monthly theme with today's service. And as you know, the September theme is unity and diversity. That irresolvable push-pull of honoring individuality as well as community. I say irresolvable because there will always be a tension between these two be attention between these two ends of the human spectrum. Our work is to find as many eloquent and suitable means of holding them together without destroying one or the other. Holding them in tension to create a cohesive group without trampling on the freedoms and contributions of the individual. The democratic form of governance both in our country and in our church is one tool of balancing the two opposites. Although watching Congress work can seem like watching oil and water stuck in a jar. <clears throat> Often in large groups or institutions, unity wins out over diversity. The emphasis becomes finding common ground and working to make community at all costs. And that may arise from fears of breaking into smaller factions. A club or a company, church or nation can stagnate when unity is overemphasized, limiting fresh ideas and perspectives. Over the last 50 years or so, marginalized groups and minorities have worked to alert us that differences matter. They remind us that rushing to create unity while overlooking disparities may actually keep a group from thriving in the long run. Hurrying to find agreement interrupts possibilities and insights that reside in our differences. So the work of scientist Carl Linnaeus is a fine example of making use of the value of variations and diversity. So, because since antiquity, scientists had puzzled how to classify living organisms 
with any coherent method. Ancient Greek systems from Aristotle and Pliny that were still in common use in the 1500s did not help with all the new life forms being discovered during explorations of new lands in the New World. So in the 1700s, Carl Linnaeus works out a cohesive, descriptive, hierarchical method of identifying and cataloging plants and animals. As an example, before Linnaeus, the flowering plant Arbutus had an eight-word Latin name that meant Arbutus with upright stems, hairless, sawtoothed leaves, and many-seeded berries. Under Linnaeus' nomenclature, the plant becomes Arbutus unido, which describes everything the longer name did. He famously says, God creates, Linnaeus organizes, naming more than 9,000 plants. His work generates the new scientific field of botany. And he catalogs animals too, initiating zoological taxonomy. In Linnaeus's hierarchical nomenclature, we are all animalia. Just coming back from high school, we are different from plants. And in the next level of classification, we are all chordate by phylum with vertebrae and a spinal cord. We are mammalian by class with mammary glands and a region of the brain that regulates body temperature. We are primates by order and hominati by family. Great apes. We are hominini by tribe, splitting off from chimpanzees over five million years ago. We are homo by genus, another ancient split with increased brain capacity. And lastly, we are homo sapiens, humans who walk on two legs, have a complex brain structure with reasoning, language, and culture. So from a lifetime of carefully observing similarities, as well as differences, he creates naming systems that lead others to even greater discoveries. Darwin's discovery of evolution depends intimately on Linnaeus's work. So besides being a group of Homo sapiens, we have many other cultural and social distinctions we choose to make. I'm a female, a Tulsan, light-skinned, educated with advanced degrees, yet physically unable to roll my R's. We are alike, and we are different. And since we're a religious gathering, let's talk about how we separate ourselves into religious categories. For example, it can be tempting to talk about Christians or Christianity as if a single monolithic group, all followers of Jesus Christ. But in reality, there are seemingly infinite expressions of what it means to be Christian. The Society of Friends or Quakers believe, worship, and organize themselves in completely different ways from members of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. 
the Mormons. Their theologies grow out of distinct periods of history, community experiences, and situations. And even beyond these denominational categories, various groups claim their experience their experiences are not fully expressed in any Christian or religious tradition. For example, the theologian Valerie Saving wrote an essay published in 1960 about sin. I don't know if the group studying sin has gotten to her yet. She explores differences between the acculturation of men and women. And in a radical move, Saving proclaims that sin, defined by the thousands of years of Christian church teachings, only addresses the failings of men and does not fit women's experiences. She writes how traditional Christian interpretations are aligned with the male experience. Sin is the self's attempt to overcome separateness by magnifying its own power, righteousness, or knowledge. Man knows that he is merely a part of the whole, but he tries to convince himself and others that he is the whole. He tries, in fact, to become the whole. Sin is the unjustified concern of the self for its own power and prestige. It is the imperialistic drive to close the gap between the individual, separate self, and others by reducing those others to the status of mere objects, which can then be treated as appendages of the self and manipulated accordingly. Does this definition of sin resonate with any of you? And not just men. I see it in me. I am the whole sometimes. So after drawing distinctions between masculine and feminine experience in the sharpest possible terms, Saving concludes that women, because of cultural roles, particularly shaped by childbearing and rearing, have to avoid, and I quote, too much of her, giving too much of herself so that nothing remains of her own uniqueness. She can become merely an emptiness, almost a zero, without value to herself, to her fellow men, or perhaps even to God. For the temptations of woman as woman are not the same as the temptations of man as man. For woman, they are better suggested by such items as triviality, distractibility, diffuseness, Lack of an organizing center or focus. Dependence on others for one's own self-definition. Tolerance at the expense of standards of excellence. Sentimentality, gossipy, mistrust of reason. In short, underdevelopment or negation of the self. Does that resonate with anyone? She notes that whereas pride and self-aggrandizement are at the root of the sin for men, its antidote, promoting selflessness, 
is the opposite of what women need. In Saving's opinion, women must be encouraged to assert themselves as individuals. I see myself in her definitions of sin. When she wrote that essay, other groups began to see how traditional Christian theology fails to address their experiences. For example, liberation theology also arises in the 1960s as a reform movement in the Catholic Church to return its teachings to a politically and culturally decentralized religion. It interprets the teachings of Jesus Christ as liberation from unjust economic, political, or social conditions. Liberation theology is a strong, vibrant call to action against poverty and the sins producing it. Black theology is a form of liberation theology to assist blacks in America and South, America, South Africa, marginalized by injustices. This theology focuses on God's actions to help the oppressed. Then there's something called womanist theology, which reconsiders the Christian traditions with the intent to empower and liberate African-American women. Womanist theology challenges all oppressive forces, impeding black women's struggle for survival. It opposes all oppression based on race, class, sexual preference, physical ability, and caste. A thorough re-examination of the Bible and Christian teachings from the lens of sexual minority communities has produced queer theology. They've reclaimed the word queer. Queer theology begins with an assumption that gender nonconformity and gay and lesbian desire have always been present in human history and demonstrates how they are present, yes, in the Bible. As with all other liberation theologies, it offers a way of unraveling structures and stories that have been oppressive to those who identify as lesbian, gay, trans-identified, bisexual, or queer. It is also a way of understanding the Bible as a source of stories about radical love. Lest... um, the humanists in the room feel certain that their worldview is broad enough not to require these finer distinctions. There are indeed scholars and theologians and lay people outlining black humanism, queer humanism, and more. Just as Unitarian Universalists often ask why, despite our saying we are open to all, all do not walk in our doors, the humanists met The Humanist magazine in last year's article, The Hidden Hues of Humanism, begins, For years, it has been lamented that humanist groups and events lack adequate participation by racial minorities. Our philosophy is inclusive, goes the refrain. Our doors are open. Anyone can come. Nonetheless, 
the usual overwhelmingly white demographic remains substantially unchanged in humanism. Further along in the article, it quotes Civic Q. Hutchinson, who's an author and senior fellow for the Institute of the Humanist. And she says there's little analysis of the relationship between economic disenfranchisement, race, gender, and religiosity in new atheist or secular humanist critiques of organized religion. Their humanism fails to notice white privilege, fails to see that the needs their philosophy addresses are particular, not universal. One might take the defiant expression, no justice, no peace, and rework it to say, no justice, no African-American humanism. I want to make very clear that I'm, I'm not trashing humanism or Christianity, but trying to make a clearer case that the particular truly matters. What each of these refined theologies, whether it's Christian or humanist or Jewish, or what they have in common is recognition that differences contain important information. A powerful majority within a movement or a group can ignore, run over, and belittle any deviance from the norm. A rush to unity can limit possibilities, restrict creativity, confine interpretations, and ultimately deny another person's reality. Since I'm new to Hope, I've heard members describe how much the church means to them because it is a group of like-minded people. Yet, every one of us in this room is experiencing something different each moment of this worship service. I value that each of us has an ever-changing theology in progress. It's exciting to me how all our life events and genetic chromosomes stack up within us to create unique individuals. Two of our Unitarian Universalist principles, the first and the last, express the friction involved in our project to create a unified group, a unified church, a unified denomination. Our first principle outlines how we value diversity. It states that we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Then the seventh and last principle cites the source of our unity as respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. We are like liquids in a jar, oil and water. When we get together and are shaken, we may mix momentarily, but over time easily separate back into our cliques. What we have agreed to do in coming together here is to stay with this paradox of diversity and unity, even though at times it may be uncomfortable or seem impossible. We have come to work hard to find social and spiritual emulsifiers, 
that can act like the egg yolk in our story for all ages, when added to, to usually antagonistic substances, it binds them into a smooth new combination that is nothing like the original two. So staying together as a church, having unity as a family, living together in a city or state means respecting differences before binding into a unified whole. Many ethical and religious values can serve as emulsifiers to respect and combine those valuable differences. Love, curiosity, equanimity, humility, and patience won't erase our differences, but instead allow them to help us form an even greater whole. Our work as a church is to discover and name our distinct differences while cultivating all the tools at hand to gently bind us together. May it be so.